everybody. If you're anything like me, you probably realize that the situation of convergent and accelerating deep problems at large scales that we call the metacrisis is so serious that we basically can't afford not to listen to two white guys on the internet discussing the speculative dynamics of post-normal worldviews. So today I'm joined by Marcus Aurelius Feenstra, the wanderer from Down Underer, to explore normalcy, worldviews, and his own attempts to map a first-person inhabitable holarchical spectrum of the ways of being present together, which includes the subconscious and the imaginal. And as we explore the energized weirdness of his flavors, try to be alert, as we will have to be, because frankly, the whole discussion itself is embedded in our sense of normal and abnormal, and the worldviews from which we're viewing the concept of worldviews itself. Hi, Mark. Your face has changed since we had all set. It's good to see. Maybe I'll just start checking in. Sure. I've just arrived in um, Northern California a couple of days ago, and I noticed I've been I've been coming to the United States for a long time. A long time ago, I remember I wanted to come to Turtle Island instead of this political construct. I was like, okay, I'm just going to have a go at seeing if I can sustain that orientation and then i noticed this time coming i've been practicing just being living on the earth and so i wanted to kind of arrive out of that experience or that sort of frame and i noticed how uh, something but like my body just adjusted time zones straight away and I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this is a thing, living on a planet. It's like, maybe I've got this construct in my head that I've been inhabiting, which means that when I move, it takes quite a while for my psychological infrastructure <laughs> to kind of <laughs> readjust itself. And yeah, anyway, I don't know why, but I, I got a good night's sleep. I woke up early in the morning and I was refreshed. And then last night I went to bed early and woke up yeah really uh quite early this morning and i was wondering i was just lying there watching a lot of noticings coming about this conversation and just witnessing all of that so i feel quite uh warmed up and quite curious because it's like i think i've been wanting to have this conversation with you for some reason and i'm really curious to see what what happens that what what is that desire in me connecting to yeah and then i'll just say that the thing that that feels very uh alive in my being is it's just starting with the question what is normal and and uh and and especially i've been driven by this noticing that creativity doesn't seem to me to have a sort of moral dimension to it it's just its own thing and it can serve anything you know that's and then i'm like i what is it that constrains normal to have a harmonizing tendency what is that because that seems to me to be like a really interesting whatever that whatever it is that 
disables and enables that seems like a really interesting thing for me and and i and i and my story it's got something to do with normal with whatever what the kind of normal is or maybe even what normal itself is in in the realm of worldviews and stories about reality so that's kind of a jumping off point that is quite quite alive in my being at the moment so that's kind of what i'm arriving with here are uh, the two things that come up for me around that first is this sense of like a the interplay between a stack of different normals and i love that you started with arriving in california because i think the ancient human normalcy has to do with uh, the practices by which we become indigenous to a place and uh, our ancestors had a lot of time to work those out but now that we move around so much, we have to get way better at doing that more quickly. And that's somehow underneath this ancient way of being normal. Mm. And then these sort of um, historical ways of being normal from the last several thousand years. And then this recent way of being post-normal or abnormal, you know, maybe we want to call it postmodern or something like that, that's sort of seething and reflecting and feeling out of place within it. It doesn't even feel like it belongs in the modern normal anymore. And then this little possibility of some kind of integrative or metamodern or like super post-normal system that tries to bring normalcy back into that. So I love the idea of those interacting with each other. But the notion of creativity i think is really important because i think there's a there's a kind of simplicity to the metaphysics of normals just a given and we have to return to it and there's a more daring way of looking at it which is normal is like a a way of getting what we have at the moment and folding it back together in harmony to reach a certain quality um, that feels natural, feels normal, that normal, that normalizing is an action we have to perform given the kind of world and the kind of parts we find ourselves to be inhabiting. And if we think we can like abandon this and get back to when it was normal, we will go astray. What we have to do is gain a new confidence and a set of skills to generate normalcy out of the conditions we're given. So what I, what I noticed is that I, I, yeah, I have a particular, like Gurdjieff used normal in a particular way, which was kind of like, he seemed to mean it sort of normal as an equivalent to a healthy, a sort of way of being human that's healthy. And, and, and what I notice, I'm using it in a very different way, which is something like normativeness, which is to say, when I when I was a child, I experienced myself as being raised to believe I was, I was sort of had to discover, first of all, how to fit into what was normal in my family. Normal did not negotiate with me, not really. I mean, I could cry, you know, but still I had to kind of bring something to the table that I needed to fit in with. So, and for me at least, that I got the message fairly early, I think, that I was supposed to fit in with normal and I kind of needed to figure it out. I needed to figure out what that thing was. If I wanted to get what I wanted, 
then I needed to fit do it through being able to fit into this construct. And obviously, I'm for me, I'm you know, I'm not. I didn't find that very easy, but but I learned. And then as I grew up, I learned that 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 was how the whole thing worked. And and I think if I'm defining normal from now, I would say something like Homo sapiens kind of took over from a bunch of other kind of humans. There was a kind of competition for who was going to, which kind of human was going to be the dominant human. And I think there's been a kind of evolution of worldviews, but the thing, and then there was competition within them. But in my story, they were all sort of including indigenous ones, as far as I can tell, not that I really understand from the inside, but they're normative in the same sense that the parents raise the kids to fit in, to, to take the worldview as if it was reality, not to be wondering about what reality is and inquiring into that and building an understanding out of that. And I'm, I think what I'm interested in is that, is like, is there a non-normative worldview that, that educates the human being as a being to wonder about what reality really is like because as far as i can tell every worldview is a story no story captures the thing that it's a representation of it's sort of a contradiction in terms but there's some real mystery in there because it seems like stories somehow humans have a capacity for imagination generally unconscious as far as i can tell what I think I did looking back was I learned how to create a self first that could inhabit a world that I constructed and then a way of interacting with other constructed selves inside that world that I was unconsciously creating with other beings. And I wasn't that good at it when I was a kid, which was pretty scary because it's like, well, there was monsters in the cupboard and under the bed, and but I had to carry on pretending there weren't because in the story that my parents were in, there was no such thing as monsters under the bed. So I, I gradually learned how to stabilize that. Even when I was on my own in the dark, walking down the street, I was still able to pretend there was no monsters anywhere in the dark that I didn't, didn't know about. So for me, there's something really fundamental about the type of worldview wherein humans raise other humans to unconsciously imagine a story about reality and then create a self or selves to inhabit that reality and then forget that that's what we're doing. So for me, I'm thinking that's normal. Normal is, is when, we, when we privilege a story and that story sort of draws everyone in a local, you know, it could be there might be a global version of that now into it, but we don't talk about it in the same way that fish don't talk about water. It's like we just get raised to inhabit it. And I think it's significant, the significance of it for me, and, the, and I think the urge to converse about it is that I don't, I listen to people who I think have really profound insights of one sort or another, but the insights and the way that they're communicated don't tend to include that we are inside a story that we're making up and the insights are inside the story. They're not about that. They don't include that we're in a story. And I'm, I'm like, what would we be saying to each other and how would we be saying it? 
if we agreed that we were only in a story and there's something else is happening and it's and and we don't really have an agreement about how to talk about that something that's happening free or at least as free as we can get of our our, our narratives about about what kind of story it is yeah i appreciate you bringing up the Gurdjieff point because if people are listening and they're versed in that stuff they'll know that he uses normal with a particular implication in some way I've heard people distinguish it from ordinary that ordinary people are not normal and it would be a great thing if we could just be normal human beings again that would get our evolution moving I sort of I think of the ancient people as yes constructing a normal yes creating stories but the way they live and the pressures of their life and their exposure to the uh, complexity of the natural environment and to many of the uh, forces that are so fundamentally embedded in our organism uh, constrains the way that they make up those stories and maybe keeps it truer to what the organism is capable of mm -hmm. and then as we move into cities and later as we move into modernity we gain this ability to create normals that deviate further and further from our structural type. Hmm. Uh, and at first, we don't notice this when we begin to become rational moderns with the formal operational cognition. Then we begin to tell a story where we can distinguish the story from reality to some degree. And that opens up possibilities of science where we're like, oh, can we make the story match reality better? It also opens up possibilities of manipulation and marketing. We're like, well, maybe we can change the story a little bit here. Mm -hmm. And then you get this level of people who've lived through that and seen a bunch of that. And they are very aware, very sensitive to uh, like a war between multiple stories, multiple kinds of normalcy. Uh, but they become like super reactive to that fact. And to them, it's just like a flatland battle between different normals. And then what we need to do is create like a new conversation around uh, how do we judge between different normals, um, regardless of what situation we find ourselves in? How do we make a normal that matches more of reality so that we can say that's a better normal than these other normals? But what do you, so I'm, and I, I'm familiar with that orientation. And I, I think I've got more curious about how to notice normal in the first place in a first, second, sort of immediate proximate sense. What is it that's happening? Because I can, if I tried, my story is that if I try to change normal without being aware of its presence, I end up recreating it because it's still the deep, the deeper assumptions that are in behind whatever, however conscious I am of it, are still going to be operative to the extent that I'm not conscious of them moving and the way that they move in my being and in my in my relating. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded of a line that I imagine that I read in Heidegger um, about how rebels are asymptotic to rebellion, to actual change. They and I, I remember people in high school, the people who stood out the most as the rebels were like the first people to get a house and get married. And it kind of caught me off guard. And I realized that the fact that I noticed them as rebels meant that their rebellion was conventional. They were mm -hmm. actually demonstrating conventionality in their rebellion. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the um, 
the unexpected ability of the normal to capture us and that we need to be able to be more sensitive to it and see it operative. But I also think that's not necessarily for everyone. Like we're talking a little bit about archaic peoples. And one of the things they do is they specialize that into the shaman or the witch or whatever it is. There's somebody in the village who senses that and they're born maybe with more aptitude for that. And if they can be encouraged to pay attention to it, they can draw conclusions and help craft the normal of the village for everyone else without requiring them to stop doing what they're doing and become super sensitive to that. And maybe I really, I really appreciate that that line of thought around the shaman and and in the village. And then I'm thinking in in the context of contemporary life, for me, the the work there's such an extraordinary level of creativity at play and it seems like it's creating at least as many problems as it's solving arguably way more and and that and then so for me the 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 difficulty from the shaman point of view is is that creativity how does that creativity come into harmony with what's needed what is that? Because if the shaman class of beings can't sort of reveal a, a way of being that is attractive enough to those people who are doing that creating, then it's it seems to me like we've got very little chance of not kind of things not going awry. We're just not aware enough of the consequences of that creativity in advance enough to not end up in even more trouble and we're already in seems to me like quite a bit so and then i see you identify yourself and not only you but i mean i'm i'm the same i'm in the shaman kind of territory and i'm like okay for me there's some kind of mission in there about about how does how does a form of creativity emerge given that we do have what i experience as a form of normal which is constraining and harnessing creativity in ways that seem pretty unhealthy a lot and it's pretty good at it it's like you know the rewards of joining in are quite compelling for most people <laughs> <laughs> and i'll give you an example it's like i was noticing i was uh thinking about uber a couple of days ago and kind of i'm in san francisco and there's so much creativity in this in the bay area right it's it's sort of a world place for creativity and I'm like, why didn't the taxi drivers do their own Uber? And, th and then that for me was like, because it just seems so obvious. Like, it's like you're, you're, you guys should have this infrastructure. Even once you saw it happening, you should start a drone somehow or another. Why didn't you? And, and it feels to me like there's something in the way of that kind of creativity that is really needed, really got some value. Yeah, I remember my father getting really upset at a news story when i was a kid and it was about floods that had devastated this village in bangladesh and the reporter was there talking to them and they you know there were all these dead people and they were rebuilding their village exactly the same way in exactly the same spot and they were talking about how the floods killed them every year and you're just like oh my god <laughs> that is that what we're like as a species it's that hard to do something different even when it's killing us yeah and yes that is what we're like um and it's uh, like sort of three different problems came up for me. Like one problem is what are the practices that make the shamanoids or whatever we want to call them more capable at doing their task? 
what are the attitudes that make them more oriented toward using that capacity to serve the villagers? And what are the patterns of village life that are necessary in order to sustain and support and encourage and listen to the shamanoids? Yeah. Those are like three interlinked problems. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful, beautiful inquiry. And that what I think what I've been noticing and, and sort of become uh, some kind made some kind of inner commitment to is the sense that there's a like at the moment i think people who who are able to access profound creativity are not seen as like a transmitting station for some deeper intelligence they're seen as the source of that intelligence and it seems to me like when when we dissociate wholeness you know the the well-being of all beings and whatever it is that enables that kind of creativity and we localize it in a particular being and then try some group of humans want to basically get a piece of that in order to benefit themselves right that's kind of the way that it works that so there's somehow or another when wholeness is not privileged and creativity and genius are not understood as properties of that wholeness. It seems to me that whatever the practices that enable access to that creativity sort of end up personalizing it and sort of somehow or another that, and then it becomes property. And then it feels like it can serve parts rather than the whole and does, you know, there's, a, there's, you know, fantastic industries built up around how to kind of corral all that and make sure that it that it stays that way and and rewards people for joining in with it in ways which because I think that for me that's the question of like like I, I notice in my own being there's a satisfaction that when I'm feeling in my being a connection to where that creativity comes from that can move through me that there's a satisfaction in me that i don't know if it's true because i've never been like a you know rich person i don't know what that experience is but i wouldn't trade that feeling of satisfaction for anything that i'm aware of but it doesn't seem like in this social construct that i'm part of that that kind of satisfaction is seen as something valuable or something to be prized or so i guess there's something to do in the with with what the values are that you know that probably applies to all three of those domains without which it seems like it's kind of hard for anything really harmonizing to get established because the energy is just too different than than the normal energy yeah, I think there's a an ancient sense in which the uh, the creative weirdos have to operate outside of the normal society, but there's also a sense in which they have to be integrated. And what you were saying made me think of economics, right? Like uh, inner riches is a real phenomenon, and it has real effects in the body and the nervous system. So, is there some way to calculate that into the economy somehow? Right? Well, there's so many things 
about the economic system we live in that are dependent uh, on what we choose to give numbers to. Like famously, you don't get paid for being a mom, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of work. There's all kinds of work that go on that we don't give numbers to in the economic register. Mm -hmm. And that kind of controls the outcomes we get. Is there a sci-fi future where we could include more kinds of numbers, including some number that indicated inner richness? That would be really interesting. Uh, but I'm also thinking about how adaptable the system is. People often complain about like how plastic, how uh, self-transforming capitalism is, right? If you make a t-shirt that says down with capitalism, you, you can just start selling that immediately. So the mm -hmm. system is very fun. That's a, an exaggerated version of what society does in general, the norms, the system, like what the Greeks called the nomos, it's extraordinarily flexible. The social is always figuring out new ways to recapture the sacred. Um, so as much as we build those structures, there's also like a constant vigilance that's needed that's based in a both a robustness and strength, but also a constant sensitivity and maybe even a hypersensitivity that we need to honoring people rather than thinking that hypersensitivity to the normal is some kind of pathology or failure to be a real participant. I think we have to kind of protect those people and allow them to explore that experience more. Hmm. Yeah, I, no I noticed that because uh, huh. uh, I, I think the, the economic thing for me is it's a, a lot to do with predictability and control. It's like, you know, quarter on quarter increasing returns is, is like a, the golden rule of capitalism writ large, right? That's the, and then I, I'm, I'm like, well, if I think about the, 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 the beings who create the ideas, that enables that that enable that right that's and i was like well the more of those beings who could see through that and that idea of well-being my own well-being not being correlated with economic wealth beyond a certain point, which is pretty low, actually. It's not as far as I can tell, but this that's sort of like, it seems to me that until those folks had arrived in sufficient numbers at essentially seeing through that enough and mastering or investing, I think, in in their own satisfaction <laughs> that 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 sort of like it's it's almost like because I, I think i think there is a question about i think that the ability of the economic incentive to cons to to shape creativity that's it's a pretty big <laughs> if that could shift a little bit it could have some pretty interesting effects because it seems to me like it's like trying to stop or change the course of capitalism without that. I mean, it would be hard enough to do it anyway, but it does seem to me like, you know, I think about post-normal primarily from the point of view that I've understood 
from my own experience that insights can come into my being from inside my sense of of being that there's that there's a and and that when that happens i feel an enjoyment you know there's a really powerful feeling of well-being and and that i want i want to learn how to cultivate that because then i i have the sense that there's less likelihood that i'm going to attenuate or sort of distort that i just want to stay in that stay in relationship with that and that nobody rewarding me for that has got anything to do with it it's like i, I mean i i'm it's not that i'm uninterested in it it's just that something else is like trumps in that game and somehow or another it seems to me like learning how to sort of put attention on that possibility is it, it, it seems like a meaningful uh a meaningful possibility to me and particularly the 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 communication of it because if i if i truly believe that if i if i have the experience of that i'm free of that construct then it's not like i don't engage need to engage with it i might engage with it but i'm not going to get captured by it and i have the sense that that's that if there's hope in the realm of creativity more of the beings who are sort of who happen to have that plug <laughs> that they're hooked into who were tuned in in that way seems like it would it would create some very interesting cultural dynamics if that was more more emphasized and maybe the shaman classes kind of part of the work might be that's how the village might change is the the creative classes tuning into the well-being of the whole including their own being and discovering how to kind of care for that look after that and what the balance is in that well i think there are some interesting science fiction economic scenarios that people could go through you know in terms of thinking about well how would why don't we consider someone more wealthy on paper when their well-being is increased or things like that there's a lot of interesting things that could be done that way the odds of any significant change to that calculus anytime soon is pretty low so then we look well how do we operate outside of that system even though it would be great if that operation had direct influence on that domain as well and that requires uh, like a significant mass of people, but maybe there already is that significant mass. And what they lack is mutual recognition to the point where they can help and elevate and deepen each other. Right? It's like a it's like a weird version of a Marxist problem. How do you get shamanic class consciousness to the point where it can take this whole thing to the next level? Mm -hmm. And part of that, coming back to Gurdjieff again, I love the way that he distinguishes esoteric mesoteric and exoteric because usually you just have those two categories mm -hmm. but i think we need to be thinking about people that are really just by their own temperament dedicated to this stuff they need to recognize and help each other people in the village who need to be mm -hmm. patterned by it and need to have like in ancient villages they need rituals they need practices that keep them healthy and mark the points of their lives and give them a kind of ethos and that has to be a healthier rather than a less healthy ethos but also a lot of people in the middle who are sort of straddling that who are curious who want to learn more of these skills who sort of take them back into the hive they're not fundamentally going to dedicate their whole life to it 
right? They can take it or leave it, but they often take it. And I think that's a really important chunk of this is that it's kind of intermediary class of people who are going to spend a weekend a year working on this stuff. But that the, the sheer mass of those people ends up creating a lot of change down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think because I've been noticing what I've been calling for myself, like normal blindness and normal awareness, because for me, part of what gives normal its power is is I'm normally unconscious of it, just like fish with water. Right. I just normally don't notice that I'm it's like I'm trying to change the world out there, but I'm not noticing that the rule set that is governing how I'm thinking about how to change the world out there is in here in ways that I'm not conscious of. So for me, in the mesoteric, sort of the, the curious, in the world of curiosity, it does seem to me that there's something really potent in the idea of becoming more aware that the roots of my own way of looking are constraining everything. And that if I'm not, because I what I sort of see is that when people do say meditation practice so there's a that's a mesoteric there's a lot of people doing that kind of some somewhat of a, of a practice and i what i have the sense of is that there's a sort of like separation that can come about through that where i start to notice stuff a bit more but for me there's something about like why does that stuff that i'm noticing operate the way that it does like what's going on with that and for me, there's something really interesting about those dynamics. It doesn't, it's not a therapeutic thing for me. It's much more fundamental. It's like there is a civilizational infrastructure inside my being that is active in, in a way that to, to me says something like, if I'm not really conscious of the mechanics of my worldview, then I am much more a, a, a subject of my own worldview, even though I had to create it. I am it's operating through me rather than me somehow having an having a worldview and it's it's serving my inquiry into what's actually happening and and how to how to how to be in harmony with this larger wholeness that my worldview is represent representing for me so there's something in there about the possibility that in the mesoteric because i think that in the esoteric you kind of already have to know somehow that the village is telling a story and something else is happening and and so you and you have to bear that tension but it feels to me like what's happening in the mesoteric a lot is people are being told there is something else other than that story that you can be sold in the same way you were sold that story and that you now just buy into this new thing and i'm like well and there we end up with conspiracy theories for example i mean it's not i don't have anything against them fundamentally but i'm like for me they're they're exhibiting the same difficulties that I see in the in the in the bigger story. I think it's uh, fundamentally a gray area by its nature that mesoteric, right? So you're going to get on the one hand uh, patterns that appear to be uh, an escape or a growth beyond or a growth deeper than the worldview that still exhibit the same basic logic and moves as the dominant worldview. But you're also going to get the proliferation of a lot of practices that are healthier and sourced in a more basic sense of reality. So while you're getting all of this conspiratorial spirituality, you're also getting yoga and breathing classes in every city around the world. Right. So there's a, there's mixed results in the intermediary zone for sure. 
Do you think, because, yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, I'll, I'll just say, so I'm a, in the, in the Enneagram typology, I'm an eight. So I'm a, I tend to find, discover what I think about things or what my view is by reacting to other, other views. And one of the things that I've noticed that I react to is that people who I think of in the sort of shaman class, uh, it's like to, to live in the village it's necessary to participate in the village in the village life and that the the esoteric stories seem to me to often be sort of have to kind of come into service of the stories of the village and the norms of the village and and there's something about this question for me which i think is not a question anymore but it's like have we got to the point where if we're not talking about the disease of the dominant story that's running the village, the village is going to get destroyed. It's a global village now, right? But it's like somehow or another, there's this sort of urgency for me to act, but acting won't work if acting is still in the grip of the story that's causing the difficulties in the first place. So there's some need in my story for the shaman sort of class to be going hey we're the ones who are constructing this whole thing it's out of balance it's like it's like it's like the whole thing about the esoteric the mesoteric the exoteric the exoteric has now got to the point where it seems like if it doesn't change in some fundamental way in quite a short amount of time from historical point of view then you know who knows but not good <laughs> whatever that is and 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 so I, I guess I have a question about fundamental question. I think about like how is there a, a role for that shamanic class in in I guess in the mesoteric for creating a conversation about what the construct is, not that we're trying to change it, just that we're trying to become aware that there is a construct. We're in the construct, it's operating through us, and it has got some consequences <laughs> associated with it, which are which are escalating. And, and that to the extent that we want to do something different than that, we're going to need to intervene. In in and for me, the intervention is less by trying to fix it because I'm still under the control of the root assumptions that are causing the problems. I need to be more awake to what those root assumptions are in the parts of my being that are still kind of in the grip of those assumptions. Yeah, that's a really thorny inquiry because uh, discourses about how we're embedded in worldviews, uh, they already exist. And there's a lot of people for whom you would say these things and they nod but they don't hear what you're saying anyway. So then there's a question of, yeah, there's a role for that conversation, just like there's a role for a lot of different subtypes of the shaman class or whatever we want to call them, right? Some people are going to be moved to try to introduce transformative use of psychedelics. Some people are going to be sitting on a meditation cushion. Some people are going to be making art projects. Some people might be leading soldiers into battle somewhere. There's a lot of different ways to do it. 
self-aware discourse around worldviews. Seems like it's definitely got potential to be one of those ways. It has to be handled with nuance so that it doesn't just slip into the mm -hmm. exoteric simulation. Um, and then getting that right has, I think, a lot to do with the context, right? There isn't just a general global discussion. It's a specific discussion with specific people in specific contexts. So, like, how do you find the right context and the right people to have that discourse with so that it can exert some leverage into the system? Yeah, you. It's quite. What I wonder is that the, the it's quite it's there's quite difficult to even talk about this stuff. But one of the things that I've spent probably I, initially I spent about five years or so working on my own worldview, just wondering consciously what is it that. And I started. It was depressing at the beginning because I I was like if I just put down everything that everyone else has given me that I've taken on. And I just start from here and now, what do I know about what reality is like and how, how do I know that? And it was hardly anything. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is, and, but then it grew, it grew into something. And that, and now I'm, I'm more, much more sort of familiar with, there's a kind of existential nausea that I find comes when I start wondering, really wondering what it is that's actually happening. And then I re I've come to the realization that that I, I prefer my own map because the question about what's actually happening stay, becomes part of my being if I'm going to have my own map. Even if I think there are other better map makers out there, the process of inquiring into and not so that I can, because I think this is the thing for me about what I see with normal is most people who've done brilliant maps in normal become promoters of their maps. That's the, the thing you do when you've got a really good map. And I'm like, but isn't the thing that you did, which was inquiring it for yourself into what's actually happening, wasn't that the thing that you got off on? And, and so why isn't it that you're advocating if you have a beautiful map that people go off and make their own beautiful maps, that that, that process is struggle to articulate for yourself, given this amazing thing that we're, we're all living in, is some satisfaction to be had in that process. And what I notice is that that move is orthogonal to me, to the way that most things seem to be happening the advocacy of, that if i'm going to have a satisfying life i'm going to have some kind of relationship with my own question about what it is that's going on here and how and i'm curious how you because you seem to me like you've been you've got your own sense about what it is that's going on that you've been working on you seem to me to be quite satisfied with maybe you're not satisfied with the story but with the process that you're in of further uncovering that and see some value in that not only for yourself but other beings and i i think for me that's a different move that kind of move than it is like picking up pieces of what other people have said or or inhabiting other brilliant maps like i think integral ken's map is a brilliant map it's there's no doubt about that for me but i feel like however brilliant it is it's not as satisfying to me as my own struggle to, to understand for myself, what is this thing that I'm participating in? I love a good map. And 
uh, really good maps are also places where you're likely to meet a lot of the kind of people you might actually want to spend time with. But I've always been very sensitive and I guess very respectful to uh, half-formed subtle shapes in myself, mm. right? That, you know, oh, what's the right word for that? And, you know, you look at a map, you're like, well, something feels a little off about that to me. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not. And working to get a kind of um, matching effect. If I can articulate something to myself that matches that existing feeling, mm. um, then what happens is I suddenly have a little piece of a map that's different than the map I'm looking at. And mm. my own map starts to build up. My own languaging starts to build up. And at the same time, I'm I'm getting off on the quality of that matching, right? The, the fidelity of the one system doing the articulating to the system doing the sensing is very high. And then I feel more empowered and harmonized and happy in myself because of that. It isn't and that all accumulates. Isn't <laughs> that that for me, what you just said then, that's the thing. Like, especially that word fidelity. It's like only you know, only you can tell whether or not the matching is satisfying to you. That's what I, when I was using the word satisfaction, it was with that fidelity. And for me, I feel like that's the mesoteric thing for me is, is like the shaman work for me is like get people interested in that because once that for me once the the satisfaction meter in my being is getting fed by matches sufficiently that i now i now can tell you know that then i feel like i've got my footing it's like i don't need the worldview the normative worldview because i think what happens with the normative worldview is it replaces that it says the fit is between what normal tells you about itself and whatever it is that you're noticing and if that fit is high enough then you can succeed you can at least be safe but if not if you're really good at it you'll be able to get whatever it is that it has to offer and this what you're talking about to me is something else altogether that there's nothing in that whole infrastructure that can it can compare it can't even, it's not even in the same ball game and i'm like well somehow can't we get the word out that 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 there's some faculty inside your own being that if you can pay attention to it, you can arrive at a felt sense of what is and is not fidelity. And and you can and that builds on itself. And it seems like a better life and better relationships and better contributions seem to all be side effects of that, as far as I can tell. So I'm I'm thinking again about this mesoteric zone right? That's contaminated by the esoteric from one side and counter contaminated by the esoteric from the other. Because how would, you know, what does getting the word out mean? You're going to tell it to the esoteric people who are already kind of doing it and just want to do it better. Well, okay, but they already agree. Yeah. Um, you could tell it to the mesoteric people, they actually want to hear about it. And they might take it in a, in a superficial way, or they might take it in a deep way. But if you can get through to the right members of that group, then they can have an effect on implementing practices in the exoteric. Cause I don't think you can tell the exoteric because it will, it will land in them in the wrong place and they will think they've heard it and they haven't heard it. Right. It goes into the, it'll be just stored in the stored in the foyer of their mind. So what they actually need are procedures 
that they have to go through as part of their educational and social development that take advantage of this process without them having to already understand and affirm it. And that depends on the mesoteric people transferring some of that into the everyday procedures. What do you think about the, uh, yes, yeah, there's some, there's some definitely a yes in, in, in me towards that possibility and that there's a wondering about the the ethos of the exoteric worldview that is dominant planet-wide as for this is just a for example which in which the because the from as far as i can understand it part of what worldviews do is they kind of tell me what can and can't be real and and part of the can't be in this sort of scientific materialist map which i think has sort of caught the global imagination of humanity to a significant extent at the moment is that that there's no that that satisfaction and that fidelity doesn't really have any meaning in real meaning it's like because there's not any there's no who there's no, there's no, there's nothing to tune into in the first place. And so for me, if there's no meaningful way of kind of taking seriously the idea that I am attuning to something that has integrity, you know, with the whole thing, and that, and it's that satisfaction with that integrity that means that I can trust it. You know, like, because I th think otherwise, what I think I do in the mesoteric is I'm like, I'm playing with a possibility, but I'm not serious about that play. Because in the end, what I call my managers of normal are my, where the authority figures are internally, and they know not to trust that stuff. They know what you've got to plug into at the end of the day to keep yourself safe and get what you want is what's a normal which doesn't trust that this stuff is real so this there's a kind of resource conflict for me about the people coming into the mesoteric kind of taking seriously the possibility that this is really something that you can trust i think that's one thing is that there need to be a lot of different variations for the mesoteric people to find right that one person needs to find it in an Islamic cleric and one person needs to find it in an avowed atheist and one person needs it to be funny. Another person needs to be very sober. So the more options there are that they can connect with, the more likely they are to hook up with that. Uh, and at the same time, going back into the exoteric, I think there's, you don't always have to take things seriously in order to gain enough knowledge that you could bring it up when a disruption appears. Like, uh, I can take a lifeguarding course. I'm not that into it, right? I'm not taking it that seriously. I'm not really going to do a lot of training, but it might give me enough skill that if one day I saw somebody drowning and there was nobody else, I could leap in and do something useful, right? So I'm not really into it, but if there was a disruption in the external system, that might be, I might go like, oh yeah, I learned about that thing. Why don't we try that thing? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and it might be true that in the circumstances that we're in, that's that's enough. 
because it seems like the wheels are falling off anyway. So, and that maybe until the we it's obvious that the wheels are falling off, there's nothing to be done in the exoteric anyway. It's just like it's it's too well organized. And what I hear you sort of talking about is the possibility that if you had training about how to tune in and you were practicing that and then you come into a set of circumstances where it seems fairly obvious that the normal authority figures are not kind of functional anymore then you've got this other this other capacity that you've been playing around with somehow or another and and maybe you're going to take it suddenly a little bit more more seriously i think that's an ancient possibility as well because um, let's say you've got village life and the beautiful thing about ancient village life is it could go along pretty much the same for thousands of years until a disruption comes, right? Suddenly the climate changes or something, you hit something you didn't know about. That's when maybe you start treating the shaman at the edge of the village as a important social figure, right? Until then the matriarchs and the chieftains yeah. can handle it. It's life as usual. If something unusual happens, holy shit, we better go ask that weird guy if he has any input. <laughs> and I, I guess what I what I'm picking up out of that, which I really appreciate, is this because one of the ideas that I've been playing around with is that I in my internal culture as sort of I've got my own version of what is called parts work. And in my version of it, there's no givens about who the parts are. That's an inquiry question. But there, but there is a layer of my being where there are sort of managers. There's a managerial function and there's another deeper layer, which is like a governance function. And the governance function, I see that there are assumptions about reality sitting there that are pretty fixed. And that, you know, when those assumptions break down, which I think is what you're talking about, it feels like if my, you know, like I, I used to be a whitewater river guide a long time ago. And, you know, when we got in really big water, some people would lie in the bottom of the raft. Like that was going to be a good solution. I'd have to whack them with, you know, get up, do, you got to do this thing. There's nowhere to hide at this point. So I think, I think it's very salient, that question of like, what do you do when the, when it's obvious that your old way of being is no longer the, you know, the res the relevant thing. And I have this kind of, sense of wondering like what is it that that allows sort of like default ways of practicing that that are strengthening so that when those conditions arise i'm not inclined to contract i'm inclined to kind of breathe and move and and sort of exercise that capability and and i just wonder what that you know like why that why would the chief you know why would the current the power structure sort of allow the villagers or maybe even mandate you know that the villagers are sort of going to do some things that 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 in the event that a disruption happens more of them are, are better are better equipped to to respond what what's going to motivate them to make yeah, those I, think the, um, I mean the, the fantasy version is there's a really good mutually generative relationship between the chieftains and the matriarchs and the shamans and the villagers 
Uh, not that anybody's just fixed into one of these groups necessarily. It's a way of thinking about it. Um, but I think that what helps that along are sort of basic health practices in a lot of ways, right? Um, which includes your ability to respond depends very much on can your body move freely, right? Does your brain have the nutrients that it needs? Did you get enough love and challenge to be resilient and robust? Um, have you had a number of peak experiences which mm. have led you to have a little bit extra cognitive energy so that you're alert under conditions of ambiguity? Mm. Um, did your educational system ha have you responding to novel phenomenon of various kinds? Were you ever given instruction on how to be more uncontracted and functional under stressful and dangerous conditions. These are all very feasible things. And you can imagine even a simple ancient village where they've got a good diet, they've got a good domestic structure, they've got a reasonably good training system for the kids. And a very high percentage of people are able to not only handle those circumstances, but be present enough in those circumstances to hear information from a variety of sources, including the outsider. I, what I wonder, though, because what part of what I notice is that uh, one of the things that seems to me to be happening is there's a kind of increasingly sophisticated colonization of the interior by the status quo worldview. Like it's really good at colonizing interiors, and particularly because the narrative is sort of like against paying attention to the interior, which creates wonderful opportunities if you have got the skills base right well that seems to decrease well-being to me and what part of what i've been noticing in my own being is that the more aware i become in a friendly compassionate way of my own interior and other beings interiors the easier it is for me to be present with those without going into reaction to a kind of a spasm. And it seems to me that as things are making less and less sense, they're more and more polarizing, the consequences are sort of mounting up. I think it's very difficult without that to, to be able to sustain my, my being so that I'm well enough that given a disruption, I'm not likely to collapse in some way or react in some way. And that seems to me like quite a big challenge in the circumstance that we're in right now. Oh, I think it is. And I think we saw uh, like during the COVID period um, that a lot of people were not equipped to maintain their social and psychological well-being under even a small disruption of mm -hmm. uh, normal social activity. Uh, and, but we also saw some people do just fine under those conditions. And there's sort of a public discourse in some areas around how to do that, right? Some people are saying, well, yeah, you've got to get outside. You've got to have exercise. You've got to have, you know, friends. You've got to get sunlight. <laughs> you've got to have all these things that regulate your organism. So there's that part of it. But then there's also how do you interact with the social and particularly the social digital world? And I think that's where a lot of this is getting out of control because the colonization of the inner life through automated programs of colonization through a machine that's in your hand or your pocket all the time, that's taking the danger up a notch. And so mm. like we've got kids and I think about this a lot. How do they go forward in this kind of a world that requires them to be at the same time 
way more suspicious of everything all the time and yet not emotionally collapsed from everything because you're suspicious of it. But that comes back to, for me, a kind of Grigefian conversation, which is if the education has somatic, emotional, and intellectual components to it, you're in a better position. If you're using your device, but you're also remembering the experience of the body, then it doesn't capture you as fast, right? If you are, if you have a little bit of more emotional sophistication, you don't fall for the trick as quickly, or you're able to critique your own responses without having your heart collapse because you have a little bit of room between these things for them to interact with each other. So I think that kind of an education, which is admittedly pretty rare in most cases, but it mm. has a lot of potential to help. Mm. Mm. And what, what I, what I notice is something, I th and I think this is kind of what was activating me was that that it's less what kind of worldview I'm in. That because to me there's 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 obviously tensions between different perspectives on what's happening, and they're very activating for a lot of people and provide great fodder for owners of social media platforms of one sort or another to exploit, right? I get that. And then if I think about raising kids in this world, I'm like, well, noticing that there are these different stories about what's happening and that, you know, like I've got one too. There's something about, for me, about the, like just a compassionate awareness that this is, this is what's happening. It feels to me like, and, and that there's not really any way out of it we might come through it but we, there's no like in the i don't know if you ever read your the, the story we're going on a bear hunt to your kids did you ever read in that story no i don't know it's that kind one. of like a they there's various obstacles that that is a bear chasing them and there's various obstacles and they can't go around it they can't go over it they can't go under it they have to go through the obstacle and it feels to me like we're really totally in this obstacle together now as human beings and the things are amping up the difficulty levels amping up and somehow or another the awareness of what the what the nature of the difficulty is that we're in and that the, that the sense that there aren't sides in the difficulty there there's just difficulty and the difficulty includes all the different sides rather than somehow you got to pick one it feels to me like that at least in my story and my, my child raising kind of thing was was pretty 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 central yeah yeah that's uh uh i mean there is this impulse you get sometimes if only we could extract ourselves from this entire situation and get back to a healthy mode of living but you can't there's nowhere to extract to and in fact you need the skills that you develop by participating in the things that are going on but to me it's like we've got to get the balance right between uh, an older set of skills that still apply, right? And one of those, for example, like intentional control of attention is in all the Dharma systems around the world. And if there's a system trying to co-opt your attention, then that only works as much as you have no extra attention skills. But if you are better at controlling your attention, you're better at handling all of that. So that's an ancient skill. But also, everything's changing now. It's not just that there's semi-intelligent automated machines playing a game against you through your own device. It's that uh, we've 
we can make babies in labs and have sex without babies and we can invent new species and we're going off the planet and like the entire history of the biosphere is being fundamentally changed and so the past only tells you so much and we also have to look to the kids insofar as we respect them and find them to be healthy and intact to also tell us right like as you're you're tunneling through tell us what you see right we'll tell you some things and you tell us some things because we all don't know what's happening now even though some of it will be the same as it always was it's funny i i um one of the people that i talk regularly with is a is a mum and she has one daughter and she's been sort of passing on some of the fundamentals of the conversation we've been having about normal about the construct that we're in that somehow or another for me that seems to be helping feeding something in her daughter that that there's a difference between the construct and the thing that's actually happening and it feels like when i was a kid no one i knew there was a difference something in me knew that there was something that what that was not being told to me that was happening and it wasn't okay with me but i i couldn't talk about it to anybody i didn't even know but she's like in a conversation you know every day with her daughter about that that there's a thing here that we're all in that we're all going through together and your teachers are sort of like there to enroll you in it that's kind of what they're, they're up to you know like and 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 if you it's no good fighting them it's like it's just not gonna help but being aware that there is such a thing that they're, that they're up to and they don't even know that they're up to it and then, then you get some freedom to navigate inside the thing and i feel like there's something about that especially for me not just that i am aware of it but there's compassion because it seems to be generating a lot of suffering and it, and it's like the polarization of the people who are suffering and then ending up wanting to fight with each other rather than just noticing these are constructs creating a lot of suffering man that sucks <laughs> we're all inside of it whoa what are we going to do you know that that conversation for me with kids seems like uh i don't know it's not only kids it just seems but i feel like somehow or another if there's some awareness in is in my story anyway in the rising generations that sort of like a there's a bow wave of uh, from the future coming towards us all and somehow the kids uh, are growing up knowing somehow in their being that this really huge thing is not going to stay how it is now and somehow i need an education that's going to allow me to be in relationship with that rather than pretending to ignore it because it's going to make me sick if I if I try to live my life inside the, the pretending that that's not happening and I'm quite curious for you as a dad how do you how do you address that I mean I think there's a to me there's like two signals there's a signal coming from the past and a signal coming from the future uh and so the signal from the future I look to what's happening in the culture uh and i look to them to people who are coming up in the culture uh and i probe with curiosity and i try to um i'm interested in adapting to bits of what they bring up 
at the same time, a lot of what they're bringing up is just what everybody always brings up and isn't novel, doesn't represent that signal from the future. Mm -hmm. um, but I only do that where I have trust that the signal from the past is securing them, right? If the organism isn't okay, if the mind isn't okay, if they're not um, self-regulating, things like that, then their perception of the signal from the future becomes unreliable. So my job is to stabilize their ability to receive the signal from the past so that I can receive the signal from the future through them. Mm. Um, some, something you were saying there made me think of an event that happened to me the other night. This is a really uh, appropriate conversation because we'd watched a Christmas show and I woke up afterwards in the middle of the night with this out of this dream where half of me was experiencing Christmas magic and half of me was experiencing this nauseating aesthetic and moral pain relative to some forms of Christmas magic and holidays. Mm -hmm. And it, it made me think back to my entire history of, and a journey in relationship to conventional social symbols. Because when I was a kid, um, like, it's like I felt good enough to feel menaced by a lot of the things people were doing, a lot of what was normal, a lot of the teachers, it seemed like an assault on something I had to protect. And I was very critical, very aggressive about it. And I'm happy that I was so stubborn in that. As I got a little bit better, a lot of the adults actually started to let me go off the game board, right? Especially because if I could do well at sports and answer the test well and be polite to them, it's like the village detected me as a benign uh, shamanoid in training and they let me do all kinds of things that they didn't let other kids do so that was great and that accumulated into a feeling that maybe i've been too judgmental against the normal social customs and that's i think a sign that my sense of inner harmony was increasing because now it wasn't threatening mm -hmm. and so i started to challenge my own assumptions i started to try to do and re-inhabit the things that i'd rejected uh, and now I feel even better. And what I'm sensing in myself now is a return to that earlier judgment. You go, you know what? Now that I'm on the other side of this, I was correct. A lot of these things are really dangerous and insidious in extremely subtle ways you really can't explain to anyone, but it's bad for us. <laughs> and I have to be able to uh, skew things and articulate things without seeming like I'm the enemy of what people hold dear, but anywhere that I can convivially undermine this, I'm going to do so. Yeah, the operative word in there being the conviviality, right? That's because yeah. <laughs> I think for me, I guess maybe that's kind of like part of shaman technology is like there has to be a way of interfacing with the village that suits your nature your shamanic nature, right? And that conviviality, playful energy seems like it suits your your being, right? That's, yeah. You know, what, what I notice for my own being is that there's something about friendliness. I just feel this passion that feels like it works. It's like, it's and that it's okay. And it's okay to be you. It's not, you don't need to prove anything in order to be worthy. It's, it's, that's really interesting because there's, uh, on the one hand, the more the more of yourself that you've integrated and sort of worked with, I think the more of a basically benign quality of harmonization comes across. Mm 
There's also differences between different types of people doing this, and you have to find what's your style for doing this. Mm -hmm. And then there's also some more general, like tactical uh, skills. Like I think of the, uh, there's a question always around Buddhism, which is what's the relationship between emptiness and loving kindness and compassion, right? And I think there is an ontological connection, but there's also a social strategy connection, which is if some of the people are going to be doing this, then practice putting off a benign vibe to the other people in the kingdom, because <laughs> that's going to put yeah. you and them and us in a better yeah. position over time. <laughs> it's funny. I'm quite curious about that because I noticed like my dad was genial. He was a genial kind of a guy. And 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 I, and there was definitely an artifice to that. It was, you know, and it worked. It was really but underneath that, because uh, I feel like I adopted that unconsciously, but I was actually really angry. And, you know, like I, you know, when he when I was 18, I sat my parents down and spent a couple of hours telling them about what it was like having them raise me and and how not okay I was with it all. And and then left. You know, I left. I I, I never intended to come back in that moment. Well, of course I did, you know, but but the 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 thing for me was that. I picked up that kind of geniality unconsciously myself. The angry guy underneath was being genial on the surface. And then there was another kind of thing that happened much later on when I made peace with the angry guy, you know, I started looking after him and wondering what he really wanted and, you know, spent hanging out with him and he started to relax. And, and then there was a kind of friendliness that wasn't an artifice. It was actually sort of, I don't know, I don't know what to call it, but it's a different, it's got, they've got very different, different qualities. There's, there's like two complementary skill sets. I, I lived in a community for a while that focused on Buddhist psychology, right? And one of the things they did was basically practice generating the emotional chemistry that you want to have. And so you, you start superficial, right? And you're trying to do this performance and deep down you don't have it, but you can get better. You can, right? If you're congenial, great. Okay, bring it into your heart, bring it into your lungs, turn it into your gestures, show it with your eyes. You get better at really feeling it. And I think that's an important skill because there's a, there's a language of intentional emotion that's sort of shared in the sacred lineages. And it's a skill to have, but... There's this other skill that's a little bit more psychoanalytic or, or a better word than psychoanalytic, which is, can you, from your congenial point of view, accept all of the dark affects as well? I fold them all in. And I find that's a really important piece of having kids around because if they're sensitive and they're smart, they'll immediately detect incongruities. And sometimes they falsely detect incongruities, but other times they really detect them and they want to bring something up. And if you're like, don't want to talk about it because it's negative and you want to ask them to be positive instead, it doesn't go away. It simmers. So you have to really challenge yourself to accept their uncertainty, accept their suffering, accept their fear, accept their sorrow and try to make a domestic space, which is open to all of the affects. I think that's important. Yeah. I think it, that what you're talking about plays back into the 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 idea that a, like when the wheels fall off, well, they're already sort of falling off. But if you're talking about the villagers being ready 
for a, an event, then to me, what you're just describing then is a lot of it. Cause it's like, it's no good if I know what to do in an emergency, as long as everyone's being nice to me. <laughs> Cause it's probably not going to be the case. So see, yeah, it yeah. seems like, and maybe that's quite an edge because to get to the place where I can be with somebody who's terrified or somebody who's flooded, however they happen to be flooded, and I'm okay to be with that being, and I may need to do things like in the rafting example, I don't normally hit someone with a paddle, you know, but if it's a life or death situation, I'll definitely do that action, but I'm not doing it out of anger. I'm doing it because it needs to be done because that person is inside of a dream that might kill us and <laughs> they need to wake up and I need to find a way to do that right now. So there's something for me that that's quite an edge that, that if it's necessary to be able to cultivate that capability up to the point where I can embody it when I'm in the presence of beings, maybe even including inside of me who are not okay. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think um, there's small places to start, right? Um, sort of parts work and therapeutic sessions with yourself is a small place to start. Um, uh, creating a home space or creating friendships where these discussions go on, those are small places to start. But ultimately, we need to both expand the range and expand the intensity uh, and have systems for that, have... Um, I mean, one of the things that's really everybody's kind of pointing at in terms of the digital social sphere is this sense that people are becoming much more fragile when confronted by perspectives and affects that they're mm. not comfortable with, right? And it's a beautiful thing that we're trying to cultivate a civilization in which we put less subliminal distress on each other and things like that. That's great. But you still, you have to be okay with something that makes you feel uncomfortable. It has to be okay to be uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, so we need to be able to expand that to some degree into those spaces and to uh, at least have counter social networks that privilege people who are more resilient across a broader range of affects and intensities. Mm. It seems like a big deal. That, that work. I notice the in my in my own being that work of being with difficult felt feelings, emotions in the presence of in myself or other beings, it seems like it's quite a lot of work to be able to arrive there because i think you spoke about it before of like well well it's easy to project that energy out to and then engage with what that what seems to be actually happening when i do that move and quite a lot more work seems to need to go by to get to the point where i've kind of noticed that i was somehow involved in that and there's some work to be done inside of me in order to arrive at a place where i i can actually be present with that and I see that being quite, you know, this, the sensitive self. <laughs> it's like a, it's a, it's a couple of th or three stops down the line from becoming sensitive to be able to rehabilitate, you know, that those sensitivities when they're getting triggered. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm not, because yeah. I get part of what I notice is that I've got, we've been playing around with this question about like in the workplace, what would a culture be like that made you want to come to work for the culture? Because it was so, such a good thing to be part of that, that whatever the work was, the culture was worth something in its own right. And that it seems to me like th that kind of culture would have to be attending to the reality that we're in different states at different times and that if we can't look after those differences well then we probably can't have a culture that where you'd want to you'd want to come because it's only going to be okay when everybody's okay and everyone's often not okay so that seems like quite a powerful uh challenge because i don't see like in the mesoteric you're sort of talking about the person who goes to a retreat, you know, once a year or whatever. And I'm like, well, that's probably not enough to get to the point where I can be with someone who's somewhere but in the in the very triggered to flooded range. <laughs> I'm going to need more than one thing a year to get. So I'm going to need something sort of on quite a routine, regular basis that helps me arrive there. And probably more like it just needs to be part of how we do things if I'm going to arrive at that. And I, I don't. I'm I'm curious about how that happens. How to how to whether it's workplaces or whether it's family contexts. What are the rhythms and rituals that that strengthen that sufficiently that it's a thing that it's online? Uh, yeah, I I think a number of the things we've already discussed play into that a lot because I think uh, it's hard to overestimate the role that basic physiological health plays in all of this you know like being appropriately hydrated having the right amount of glucose in your blood system these things make enormous differences have you been sitting all day have you been moving around uh are you getting good quality air and water and all those sorts of things that's huge but i think the you know the the three center approach is like the minimal example of how to do that which is People have to be able to have a conversation that's informed by the fact that their emotions and their physiology and their mind are all real. They're all part of this discussion and hopefully also even subconscious and imaginal aspects of themselves. So if we all know about that and we can all check those different parts, then we gain extra sets of information about what we're going through and we can have a higher level discussion with other people as they go through things. And we are always going to you know, when emotions are evolved, it's always going to go wrong or you're going to mess up. But can people track each other through that? Can they heal? Those sorts of things. A lot of that depends on uh, preventing the problem of like the conflation of all your internal systems, right? If you see something and you don't like it and it feels bad and you have to take your body away from it, if that's all one move, then there's no like wiggle room to have those discussions that create that ethos that ultimately make people feel not only safe, but also strengthened and interested. Mm. Getting those at the same time, I think, is necessary for an ethos. And then that kind of ethos can have an open, ongoing discussion about what kinds of general rituals and ordeals they need in order to make themselves be like a healthy village. Mm. It's funny, that was where my mind was going, as I I live in a an eco-village and I notice how 
we've just been, we use a card system to make decisions as a community. And there's a conversation about a new card that's going on, about introducing a new card, which is essentially you're triggered. And so, you know, and, and let's, let's and, not, and not to make that wrong, just to notice that if we're trying to make decisions and somebody is has got triggered or flooded, then we need to, because there's a lot of power in each individual in that conversation, because anybody can block more or less any decision from happening. Well, if somebody's triggered or flooded, then you know they're going to block a decision because they're triggered or flooded, not because it's a good or bad decision. And so there's somehow or another, there's, pre, there's a, a necessity to allow the noticing of those states and then accommodation of that reality that seems like it's not that's not a normal faculty in social contexts to it's more like there's suppression or withdrawal are the are the moves so the normalizing of somehow or another attending to that situation and and then I think well then the then there's the difficulty for me of like over amplifying that because the with the card that we're talking about it's like well you can either like that can you can either self-regulate yourself back into the conversation or just leave the space and you know maybe with someone if that's going to be helpful to you so it's not like you're not being taken care of but you can't participate in the thing that's happening right now because something else is happening that is prior to being able to participate in that so it's that seems like I'm just wondering how do you make the leap because that's not a normal faculty from there to that being something which is just how how we work how we are when we're together uh, idea that came up for me was uh, a piece of writing that Dr. Wilhelm Reich had done years ago when he introduced this idea of the emotional plague, which was the kind of personal, interpersonal, and collective uh, biopathology that we were all sort of emotionally fucked up because our bodies were not allowing full streams of sensation to move through them. And therefore, our nervous systems couldn't map reality properly. And it fluctuated between people. And you'd get like, mass breakouts of the emotional plague where society degenerates and regresses for a while things like that and he was in this piece of writing looking forward to a day when someone could come to work and you would they would just acknowledge it. everybody could acknowledge that this person just was having an emotional plague day just as if they had the flu yeah. and he'd say well maybe stay home or take a few precautions. there's no problem here you're not weird uh you're just having this condition right now so it's a beautiful kind of an image, but it requires, this is the integral phrasing, taking something that's subjective and making it into an object, something yeah. that you're embedded in becomes a thing that you can think about. So that's a skill set that can be practiced and it's encouraged or it's helped along by external artifacts, right? So maybe that card is a good idea at least to introduce a conversation where our brains get better at thinking about the condition rather than just identifying with it. Yeah, I think also that the what I've experienced, my version of parts work was, because what I realized through that work was that, that there are parts of me who can care for other parts of me and are good at it. And then there are other parts of me which don't, which do other things like, 
advocate for something or you know have a good idea but when some part of me is upset they don't want to hear a good idea they just want someone who knows to understand how to understand and be present within a helpful way and i'm thinking well actually that kind of work when i start to notice that when i am away i'm not i don't have to be just that way that there are that, that i can that there, i can create in a space where different possibilities are present simultaneously or or in close enough series that it makes sense so it seems to me like that that modality interiorly then gives me a facility with other beings that i feel like is really helpful in in situations where somebody's lost their balance in some way or another yeah there's a uh, you know there's room for a a spiritually informed social ethic around a basically benevolent attitude toward other people because on the one hand you don't want it to be too artificial on the other hand you don't want it to take too long in order to emerge spontaneously so something that can mediate between those sort of a general you know like as if we were all in christendom together or something like this feeling that we fundamentally have something divine in common so that even when somebody's being carded most of the people are remembering to look upon them happily right and that's one of my rules for kids too is always be happy to see them right first thing just show them with your body that it's a pleasure to see them even if you don't like what they're doing <laughs> the basic gesture and that there's an open conversation about how we want to have that attitude toward each other even towards people or situations we think are defects and dangers in the social system that we're basically happy with them underneath uh, and they're not fundamentally turning into our enemies or into some category that could be marginalized um, because then that puts that traps them there and it generates a whole bunch of stress, which then feeds the superficiality of the machine. Mm -hmm. Like the way the way they say the most the thing that gets the most engagement online is to get people agitated and polarized about things right it feeds on distress it's like a giant black magic machine <laughs> it's given power when we dislike each other <laughs> yeah yeah and it seems like because what when you talk about the basic conditions you know the hydration and the quality of the food that i'm eating and how i'm breathing and and how aware i am of tending to all of that it seems like we're not headed towards conditions where those basic conditions are getting met better and better seems more like there's a sort of i mean that i guess part of what those sort of social technologies are doing is hoovering attention sort of away from that in a different direction and amplifying different things to pay attention to and what i i still think well there's a kind of a chasm in my story between because it's like something like how can i be okay with not being okay not only others but myself because actually a lot of the time 
I'm not able to get to a place where the conditions that I need, like I notice that I've been driving around on the, for me on the wrong side of the road in a manual car, which I hadn't realized because I'd never driven a manual on in, the, in America before, that that was going to be around the wrong way as well. And, you know, like I'm getting old, it's like my nervous system isn't functioning as well as it used to. So I notice, oh, this, the stress load on my being is relatively high. And then I'm I, I, I talking to the one in me who's like finding it quite stressful at night, driving windy, narrow road. And, and then I am having a little conversation with him and he's basically going, you know, get fucked, you know, like, you know, it's, it's like, I'm not okay. And you're trying to be reassuring and I'm not interested. I'm doing the job <laughs> that needs to be done right now. But somehow or another, I was okay with him being like that. And I think that was helpful for him. So somehow or another, it feels like there's something about being able to be okay with things being how they are, including when they're not okay, which is different than having a positive yeah. Or sort of welcoming affect, yeah. And yeah, seems kind of relevant a, to the circumstances that we're in. Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of room for an intentional, uh, unforced positive affect uh, as like a you know general social rule, but there's also a lot of room for an ethos that's permeated by certain general inquiries. And one of those inquiries is just, is it is that okay? Right. Like that's something we have to face a lot when we're doing parts work, when we're dealing with other people and when we encounter the media and the answer might be no. But to have a space where people frequently ask that question of themselves and each other, it opens them up to a moment of decontraction around the phenomenon. Mm. So you're like, OK, I hate this. Is that OK? Yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm noticing this sort of sense of meanderingness. <laughs> Let's say we got 20 minutes left. Is there anything else around normalcy and worldviews we really want to get into? Um, just one moment. Ah, <clears throat> uh, yeah, good question. Mm. Well, I get, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that's still very present for me, I think, is this the question about that there's a lot of emphasis in the culture that we're in on creativity. Creativity is kind of like the source of value. And then what I see is that the normal culture that we've got is very good at enrolling that creativity to extend itself. In other words, normal is very good at co-opting creativity to serve its agenda. And that is kind of like a hegemony as far as I can tell. And it doesn't show any signs of kind of changing. And I, you know, it's like we can sit back and relax and enjoy the ride wherever that's going to go. But my felt sense is more like noticing the question of how that creativity can sort of shift orientation so that that which you were describing in yourself 
as that question of like fidelity, like which I think I, I assume is true, is that in it's some in some sense, like I noticed, for example, years and years ago, I I was working for corporations in sort of like how to renew their cultures. And I realized after some time, which I hadn't been aware of, that I was just, I was serving the thing that I was set to not serve. And I hadn't even been conscious of it. And it you know, it was very it was heartbreaking. That realization was it took a while to let myself even notice that I, that that was what that my creativity had got hijacked sort of more or less out of ignorance until it wasn't and then it took a while because it was like oh what am i going to do i'm raising a family right now what am i going to do to keep that responsibility going if i'm not doing this thing that i've been doing somehow or another it feels to me like in the mesoteric that question about how specifically around creativity how that can sort of come into more awareness of and service to I'll call it wholeness, you know, but the well-being of all beings without getting in a fight with normal, because that just seems like a waste of energy. So it can still participate in the in the village, in the life of the village and make sense of it, but without being hijacked by the the norms of that village so that there's actual well-being being built up inside. I mean, without because at least for me, I don't feel drawn to why towards trying to keep things going as they are it's just more like if there is creative energy how does that creative energy feed that what i think you were talking about before which is kind of like the mesoteric sort of preparedness for what it is that we might be needing to be ready for Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one where it might be possible to build a big chart of all the things that would you would need in order to propagate them through the mesoteric to put it in the best possible position to make the best possible mesoteric mess because it'll always be a mess in there. But that's a very strange project. I don't know if it's possible. Maybe it is. But in, in most cases, it's going to come down to um, people who are strongly grounded in the esoteric and who have been doing that for some time and are more or less spontaneously moved to do it in certain ways that they mm -hmm. can share with certain types of mesoteric individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can only do in order to get that across and in order to have your presence show up in it and different layers of your own psyche show up, it has to be something you think is awesome. And maybe that's music or dance maybe it's a discussion maybe it's silence whatever that is so having the having esoteric practitioners um proliferate in their diversity and their authenticity in that space and uh in a way let themselves off the hook from trying to persuade a lot of those people I mean, really you want to find the people who are most aligned where there's fidelity between their receptivity and the way you want to share and, mm. and I think like the richness of many versions of that happening in that space, making a like a richer jungle of that is probably our best bet. Mm. Um, because we don't know, like without that magical chart, we don't know what's going to be necessary. So just the more kinds of things coming from more grounded, creative places 
that we can share through the mesoteric, the more likelihood there's going to be of of each mesoteric person finding the piece that might work for them so that they've a got it later if something happens but b they can then bump into each other and say hey i got this piece you got that piece that's interesting what if we tried to start an intentional community with these two pieces right mm-hmm. and then those experiments can be productive even though they will be imperfect mm-hmm. part of what i notice like i in the in the community that i live in is an example of it is that we're sort of relatively similar if you put us in the context of the wider community that we're participating in but within that community there's actually an enormous amount of diversity of perspectives and it seems like the skill of being able to be with that diversity well that seems like something that particularly because i think that thing about fidelity that you're talking about for me it's one thing to be with that fidelity in my own being but it's a very different thing when i'm attempting to tune into that fidelity with other beings and those other beings are making sense of what's happening in ways that are different to and not necessarily complementary to the way that i'm making sense of that so it seems to me like technologies that are supportive of being able to not only sort of accommodate the triggering and flooding but being able to accommodate the diversity of perspectives around that sense that everyone has kind of got their own sensitivity to what fidelity actually is in the moment it's a it's in the moment thing right that that f- feels to me like quite a big deal like a yeah and I think that's kind of what I'm drawn towards is like how 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 do we be together in ways that amplify that fidelity when it's showing up very differently. I'm thinking of the attitude that Gurdjieff brought towards um, communities of training, where he would say, "Well, it's failing because we don't have all 28 types of people or something like." You're very interested in inclusive typologies, mm-hmm. right? and that's an interesting approach because. It's like saying we need all the essential amino acids. You need to be able to run up against all the basic types of humans. And in that, in that, the friction, the, the the polishing of the rocks, whatever the metaphor is, that's essential. So you do need that experience. Now, when it's a living space, you also need a membrane that constrains that because you can't have everybody distressed all the time. You're not always in training at home. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, then you need to be able to have active programs of going out and encountering different types of strange and often distressing beings. But then he did it in a rough, old-fashioned kind of way, right? We need to have, people need to be able to escape because if you get too overloaded, it's no longer productive. Yep. And you also need to be able to trust that your your basic um uh, survival and support requirements are not fundamentally endangered by this practice so that you are at liberty. It's like saying in America, you know, you're going to lose your health care if you get yeah. fired. Well, that's tricky then. You can only undergo so many types of interactions. You can't really tell them what you think. So mm-hmm. people have to be secure enough. They have to be able to come and go, but then they have to be actively encouraged to seek out those kinds of encounters and to generate spaces where people can not just online online and in real life run up against 
people who make them feel really weird and distressed. <laughs> or who just want to solve problems in very different ways. Yeah. 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 And I, I notice that there are certain technologies that are useful or contribute towards that possibility and a lot of them that don't and then i notice the difficulty when you've got multiple perspectives you've got valuing out of those multiple perspectives of technology social technologies ways of collaborating that come from those perspectives that aren't necessarily beneficial in accommodating those the diversity and that that seems to me like quite a big because in a, I guess in a, in a in a workplace you kind of have generally speaking a hierarchy. Somebody will decide, well, this is the technology, and then it's relatively straightforward. In a community, not so much. It's well, there's power structures inside communities as well. But I I do think that question about like what technologies enhance the sort of enhance the capacity to notice and respond to high fidelity noticings regardless of the perspective and translating those into you know if they're not if they might they may be coming in a form where you might notice how you could speak about that in a way that somebody else who maybe can't get that message in that way needs to have it spoken or done or whatever in such a way that they can then metabolize that that kind of work seems quite uh helpful in the current context that we're in there's, there's an interesting balance i think that i see people trying to work it out in some leading edge spaces between like the egalitarian and the authoritative and like how do we get a sweet spot between those two uh like if i'm sort of leading at these metamodern spirituality retreats so then there's a there's like a main guy and he's at the front of the room most often uh and you can check with him as the default that's very practical but if that main guy also is putting other people up at the front of the room so we can try their thing out as well, that's really useful. And that's kind of the attitude you have to cultivate because we don't necessarily know. But if that person sits up there and can go, all right, I'm going to do these exercises. This is my approach. And everyone can register. And that person then feels heard. But the collective intelligence of the group can then evaluate that approach. And then they can later they can evaluate this approach and they can come back together and they go because we couldn't have figured it out on paper everybody has a different view but by all of us testing it out a little bit together we kind of accumulate a sense of yeah that one's okay but really most of us are going to go with this one for a while that kind of thing so then i'm i noticed uh part of what another reason why i think the normal awareness is so helpful is for me there's not only the question of sort of like signal and fidelity but there's also the question of ripeness what's the and that for me that collective intelligence collective wisdom thing for me is like often what it's doing is it's dialing into what's ready to happen in this particular collective and that and that is the wisdom of it is like i was just noticing well there's some still some resistance left around that that aspect of this thing and so it's not quite right yet and for me a lot of coming into community has been around going learning how to deepen into that what that sense of ripeness 
irrespective of my own sense of rightness because it, yeah. they're, they're different things, right? I might be ready to do something, and but we are not ready because you're in a different place to me. And that seems like what cultivates that, that sense of willingness to be open to signals of ripeness or unripeness in a collective that I'm willing to sort of subjugate my own feelings of rightness in order to participate in that. That's sure. quite a skill. That, I mean, trust building is an organic process and it takes the time that it takes, right? And that framing is really important because everything you just described, it could apply to like two people coming together in a sexual event, right? I'm ready, but if the other person is not ready, <laughs> that's a bad dynamic. <laughs> so we've got to take the time. We've got to have a framing that allows those different tempos to work something out together. And in a community or a workplace, I think it's really important for everybody to have an open conversation. Not, not they're always talking about it, but that's the frame that we don't know how long it's going to take to develop trust. You can't force that, right? It's it's a cultic thing. You're like, does everybody worship the leader? Yep. We all agree. Yep. We're all on the same page. We'd all die for each other. Yep. It's too soon. You're, you're like, none of that means anything because it hasn't really evolved through all kinds of different interactions with these people in different contexts that actually satisfy our deeper being. And we're in a weird situation because our imagined ancestors had long periods of time of living the same way to work out these things with each other. We don't have that same amount of time. We have to do it faster. But if you do it too fast, it doesn't happen at all. And all you get is a simulation that then serves the hegemony again. So we have to be ready to take the time that it takes. And then, because what I notice happening again in community is that the, the, there are part of the diversity, the reality of the diversity is there's not, not everyone wants to take the time that it takes. They're like, we either hurry up or I'm out of here. That's kind of the, and I guess in the workplace, it's a similar thing, but for different reasons. It's like, well, if we're not going at pay, a sufficient pace, we're just going to get left behind anyway. So th there's some real pressure on how that coherence can actually emerge in the reality of the situation. I think one of the things traditionally that's mitigated that is um, narrow targets, like specific tasks. You're like, hey, we got to put up a barn and we have, right? So yes, we want to stay open, but the openness is itself constrained by the fact that this barn has to get built by the end of the week. So do it as many different ways as you want to, but that's what's got to happen. And we, we have a clearer target to hit so we can mutually coordinate with a little bit more precision. Hmm. And then I, what I know, I, I, I totally get that. And I, I think it's a really great insight. And I think the, the ability to notice that not just that the barn is ripe to be built, but what it is that we're capable of succeeding at is somehow part of the question of rightness is like, well, you know, are we going to start on this bit or are we going to start on that bit? Are we going to aim to get this done or are we going to aim to get that done? It feels to me like there's a real art in being able to be in a social field or a cultural field where, where that sensitivity to those questions is sort of able to move freely enough that there's the, the, that the we 
of that group can function in that fidelity building kind of way and trust is a condition for sure i feel like it's a relevant one but there's more pressure it seems to me like on that faculty then there is capability to develop it right now it's like it's like it gets yeah. short-circuited a lot in my story yeah i think it absolutely does and uh one thing that helps but doesn't solve the problem is uh enough trust for people to exchange their experiential and technical diversity right so like you know do we have a person at the top who thinks they know everything about barns regardless of everyone else's experience or do we have a collection of equals who pretends they all have exactly the same experience of barns both of these are problematic mm -hmm. so what we actually have is a terrain where different people have different kinds of experience on these tasks how does the collective field figure out what to do well you've got to hear a little bit from everybody on that Right. You've got to have procedures to make sure the people who want to share aren't the only ones who share. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got to be able to hear not just what do you think we should do, but where's that coming from in you and your experience? And when we've all heard those things enough, we probably have a better sense of how to go at this collectively. I'm not going to solve everything, but that's an important kind of discussion to have. Yeah. And I and I think that's where the the normal thing comes into play for me a lot actually is just noticing that i've kind of got uh perspectives in me that uh when i examine them in good conditions i notice i don't even believe them but they're there anyway so i i kind of am a citizen of the way that i've adapted to the larger whole that i'm participating in there's like there's a way of fitting in with it which is not tuned in to the fidelity question in the first place it's tuned in to how to fit in and i feel like when i can articulate that that voice or or i hear someone else and they're not in it they're just talking they're just reporting that they're noticing that then it feels like that quality of perception is made object and it and therefore it doesn't need to act out in the same way because it's being recognized and validated not judged or but but actually included in the conversation then it feels like that fidelity that ripeness question can sort of come alive because we're indicating how to hear the static so that we can now differentiate it from the signal that's something that you know, even though world changes are coming fast and we can't count on uh, intergenerational adaptation to solve all our problems, that's a big piece of the ancient way to do this because that procedure you talked about inside individuals and then articulated between them as a form of normal discussion, that goes into the children. And then in a generation, that's a normal way that we speak. Right. And in the in the 20th and 21st century, they're like, OK, we're going to get together and form a community I'm like, OK, but it's not really going to be a community unless it's persisting through some generations. Yeah, because the normal mechanism is to is to grow and change in that form. On the other hand, we don't necessarily we have an unknown amount of time to pull these things off. So uh, it's a tricky balance. But I think normalizing that kind of discourse is a big factor. It's funny, though. That, I mean, like if I because. <laughs> what you're pointing to the you use the word community and i notice 
because part of my, I, I bumped into this when I was doing my own internal sort of inquiry, I bumped into this, uh, this term community of being. That, and I think it fits very well the Gurdjieff kind of thing that, that in this weird way that, that the community itself of my being or of being itself is the I, that, that if there is going to be one, it's going to include all the beings. And, and then the trick is how does coherence emerge? Not just uh, there's all these different perspectives, but somehow or another they're, they're starting to tune in to this enjoyment actually of, of being in harmony with one another and then learning how to harmonize with these larger wholes, right? And then, at least for me, was noticing that that whole thing is community being. In my story, you spoke, uh, I heard you speak about the, the possibility that, you know, the planet or, you know, the sun or that there, are, there could be, these could all be beings. That, and for me, that I choose to treat them as beings. I don't know if they are, but I'm like, I just rather live in a universe where it's all community of being. And I'm, because I, I can tell that I'm one. So, well, okay, I'm just going to project that out and see how that works out. So I'm participating in that. And what, what I think is fun, actually, in the, you know, to play with for me is that I notice it works really well because what I, in, in a social context, because for me, that dynamic I've learned inside my own being of being in community. I'm now like when I'm in community with other beings, I'm like, oh, this is just like, like how I like to be treated internally. Oh, it seems like everyone likes to be treated just like I like to be treated internally where it's okay to be how I am. So I've kind of been practicing that on the inside. And then I start noticing, like I started noticing when I, I read in a book, you know, that a tree knows what color shirt I'm wearing. Well, okay. So what about if I start playing around with these other types of beings that I'm hanging around that I'm in community with them. And I just haven't been noticing for me, I got raised to treat them like objects largely. I've got this idea that they're sentient, but I don't really relate to them as if they're sentient. Well, now I can start to play around with that. I think that for me, that speaks to a different worldview. Not that that community of being seems like to me, like it, whether it's that, it doesn't really matter what the worldview is, but that a worldview of the type that amplifies attention to how it is to be in relationship in such a way that the trust builds, that fidelity is matters, that differences of perspective are okay, that being triggered or flooded is something that you can work with. It seems to me like something in that direction might be a kind of binding agent sort of in the uh, Bucky Fuller thing about like building building the next thing that is more enjoyable to participate in while the other thing carries on doing whatever it is that it's doing. And if it was just opt in to join in with that other thing, then that might be what encourages me to, you know, <laughs> build my own shaman's hut, or, and, but in the middle of the village rather than, you know, having to live on the edge. Yeah. I think there's a um the possibility of a a healthy post-normal worldview is also a um first of all a trans-anthropocentric worldview, 
Mm. Uh, but it's also one that's deeply informed by new science, right? And I think the paradigm that's been dominant for a while that tells us what normal is, is increasingly out of date. It's like we're running the playbook of 19th century science. And every day you find out that trees can tell what shirt you're wearing and there's 12 dimensions and look at these fractals inside the electron. You're like, oh my God, that's science. So how are we adapting to that? Because that's the new material reductionism is amazing. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's virtually spiritual. Yeah. So I think that's going to help inform that. And mm -hmm. I think it's going to push us, hopefully, who knows if it's fast enough, towards this trans-anthropological attitude, which is going to be somewhat like that archaic shamanic view, but it's going to have differences, but it involves all these other beings. It involves treating them as beings, or at least being able to treat them as beings because of the increasing amount of information we have about their complexity and their interactivity. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I listened to, uh, what's that? The Daily Evolver, Jeff Saltzman on Daily Evolver. And he was kind of talking about the next religion. And he was thinking, I think that it was going to be, you know, like something like evolution, conscious evolution. And I was like, no, for me, it's going to be reality. It, it's, it's what is the thing that's actually happening. And I feel like that's the beautiful thing about science for me is it's like, there's all these people wondering what's actually happening. And I feel like in my being, there's a sort of love of that. It's like, I, you know, and, I, and this sort of sense that, that the question of how it all fits together, it feels like, oh, there's some kind of welcoming, like a, a choice, which I think is to do with trust that you were speaking to before, that I, I'm choosing to trust that whatever it is that's actually happening, I'm going to open my being to that and just see, seek to allow myself to, to let that move me, however it is that my being's ready to be moved by that. I feel like for me, there's sort of like a marriage in there somehow between the spiritual and the scientific of, of like, I, I, and I really want that, especially for kids. It's like, oh man, imagine if my heart could be moved by the science lesson and it was designed to stimulate that reverence, you know, for whatever it is and the mystery of it. Like, it, you know, you're never going to know. You can, you can do all the degrees that you like, but there's still going to be living in a mystery fundamentally. There's something really awesome for me about a worldview that is welcoming of that and that, that where I can feel at home in in my ignorance and my knowledge and my questions all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I get that picture of the mesoteric again as like the, the place where the new worldview either succeeds or fails. And there's a lot of science in there, right? There's people who are devoted to finding out about reality and they're devoted to sort of changing and learning and correcting their errors and they're influenced from both sides. They're influenced from the social system that's running entrenched programs from an earlier knowledge of reality, like say 19th century science, right? And people are getting paid. And so there's an ideological influence over what science is allowed to think because the government says this and the health authority says this and we're only giving so much money out to so many different programs to use the telescope at the university so there's constraints mm -hmm. from the social onto the scientific mm -hmm. there has to be an equal amount or more influence from the esoteric into the scientific which is to show um that there's a, a 
fundamentally no difference between the multiple dimensions of accessing the real that the, the spiritual and the artistic and the scientific, the material and the immaterial, that these blend together in a way that's mutually productive, fundamentally grounded in something unitive, and also fun to do. And if that can keep going into that middle area in a way that counteracts what's coming in from the social, then the middle area can start to produce the new worldview, I think, that we need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, right. I, it ties up the discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Way to bring it all together. <laughs> it does. It does. And 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 that's for me. There's sort of the sense of uh, yeah, the urgency and urgency, not in terms of pressure from outside, but the urge towards that possibility that feels to me like it's it, it's like i feel like that's where if you know rumi talks about like hope being a seed that you know you throw into the air and it carries both far and wide and faith is this tree that you carry in your heart that helps you find your way and i feel like that for me that worldview that i have faith in that actually already even though it doesn't really exist yet somehow or another that there is something like that and that for me what i what i feel particularly energized by that i think is connected with normal is that normal is a is a children's game we made up and we got lost in it and children do that and you know like and 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 we are children you know i you know i think as humanity john bennett said that humans have been born but humanity doesn't exist yet it's still a it's still a possibility and it feels like whatever that worldview is that you're just articulating really beautifully for me it's one for humanity it's not for this group of humans or that group of humans because it actually includes the totality of not only human experience but what it is that all these humans that we are are participating in and i'm i'm like yeah totally i'm i'm down for that for that ride wherever it goes yeah I'll second that. Yeah, totally. I'm down for that as well. <laughs> this is great. This is a really lively, free-ranging discussion, Marcus. Thanks. And uh, I hope it's not our last. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Cheers. Enjoy North America. <laughs> <laughs> I already am. <laughs>